everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. It's episode 63, and well, it's kind of a mailbag episode. I've been doing some kind of specific focus for the last couple episodes, so I need to catch up and clear up my inbox a little bit. So we're going to be talking about knotty pine. Uh, we're going to talk about rejuvenating veneer. Uh, what happens when your boards get old? A little bit about polonia. And just because you guys love that Tonewood episode, I still, yet again, have a little bit more feedback that we can talk about regarding acoustics and Tonewoods. So let's get into it. As usual, thank you, new patrons. Thank you very much. I've had several of you join the cause this particular week. I do appreciate you guys keeping the show going, helping to support the work that I do here. If you are interested, go to patreon.com slash lumberupdate and everything you need to know is there. So thanks as always, folks. Um, let's get right into the feedback. This is going back to my Softwood episode. And I've got uh, both messages from David and from Jim who are calling me out a little bit. So um, let me see if I can kind of sum these up a little bit. Um, David says, uh, regarding the recent episode on Softwoods, I think the statement, quote, there is a lot more sap because there is no heartwood, end quote, is a bit misleading or possibly even inaccurate. I understand you mean there is sap in the center of the wood and the color is uniform, but that does not quite equal the distribution of nutrients. If you've ever seen some 4x4 spruce that has blue stain, there is a clear demarcation between the sapwood and the heartwood. I'm not an expert, but maybe focusing on the nutrients as the criteria for sap and not heartwood could be applied. Um, uniform color throughout the tree may be generally true in many cases, but especially in Douglas fir, the color change is fairly pronounced. Absolutely, David. And um, I, I think you're right in saying that it's inaccurate to say that there is no sap when there's no heartwood. Um, there is the, the issue with sapwood is there are no pores. Um, there are medullary rays, but not really the same way that hardwoods have them. And that's really the key difference when a hardwood is, you know, the nutrients come up through the sapwood. Um, they're uh, processed, eaten by the tree, and the waste is transported into the center, the heartwood, via those spokes on the wheel, the medullary rays. The deposition of those heart, those that waste material, those extractives, is what causes the heartwood to be harder. It's what causes the heartwood to be a dramatically different color as well. And it's the dead part of the tree. We don't quite have that same process going on in softwoods, which is why we don't really see that clear color difference. We don't really also see a huge difference in the working properties. Now, you will see a difference in the density between early and late growth, like we see in Douglas fir, but you are right. In many instances, in the species where you can kind of trace the nutrient line, like blue stain you're talking about, that's specific minerals in the soil that are kind of leaching their way into the wood. And you can see that demarcation because there is, it's not that there's not nutrients flowing through the center, but there's more going through the outside of the tree. As the water is absorbed into the tree, there's obviously a lot more in those outer layers and it's working its way into the inner layers. Well, as it's working its way in, those mineral deposits are kind of being washed into the center of the tree and that's where you get that demarcation. So in, in a lot of ways, it does kind of sound like the same thing. You know, instead of it being waste material extractives that are being transported deliberately to the center of the tree, it's more of just kind of... Um, alluvial sedimentation. 
I don't think you can apply alluvial. <laughs> that works for rivers, maybe not for trees, but you get the idea. It's kind of washing those minerals into the center of the tree and that flow of nutrients is kind of stopping there. So that's where you start to get those sedimentary layers building up. And that's what causes that blue stain. It's what also causes some color differences. Like you mentioned in Douglas fir, you do get a lot more pink material near the center of that tree. Now, the other thing you have to recognize is there are density differences. Those early growth rings are going to be tightly packed together because you're talking about a little sapling. And as it starts to grow and it can take on more nutrients, this, the growth rate will, ex will speed up and allow greater space between those growth rings. That's why when you look at the concentric rings of the tree, they're always tighter together near the center when the tree was really quite small. So that can also cause some of that color change because you're getting more frequency of early and late wood. And that's the real uh, color demarcation in Douglas fir. I'm, I'm standing at my joinery bench as I record this right now, looking at my Douglas fir top, and you can very clearly see the sections. There are three boards that make up my top, one of those boards was obviously cut very near the center of the tree. It's much, much denser packed than the other boards around it. Um, you know, that is the older growth as compared to some of the younger growth. The board that's at the back of my bench is obviously cut. If they were, if say they were all cut from the same tree, which I don't think they were, um, the board at the back of the bench was cut much more towards the outside of the diameter of the tree where those growth rings are further spaced. Anyway, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent there, but um, thank you, David, because you are kind of you're spot on there. I don't think it's accurate to say there's no such thing as heartwood and softwood. Jim basically says the same thing, but says in, in Southern California, where I live, I can buy construction common or construction heart redwood. Now with an unlimited bank account, I can get clear heart redwood. The construction common has a lot of white colored wood as well as red colored wood. The construction heart and clear heart has all red color. What I hear, and my experience, is that the red areas are resistant to rotten insects. The white wood does seem to rot and suffers from insect damage fairly extensively. Am I missing something here? So, Jim, as with David, you're absolutely right. And redwood is a key example where we can even say more so you're right, that it's not fair to say there's no such thing as hardwood and no such thing as softwood. In the case of redwoods, the extractives and the tannin content in redwood is so high, that's what actually causes that red color. And that also, um, uh, Sequoia simpervens, the, the, the giant redwoods, the soil in that area, one of the reasons the sequoias grow where they grow is because of that soil, because of that climate. So the soil chemistry is in large part contributing to that reddish color of the red wood. And as those nutrients are flowing throughout the tree, they're, again, they're flowing mostly on the outside and kind of absorbing their way into the inside and washing with it those additional minerals and, and you know, 11 herbs and spices that make the red wood. That also, those 11 herbs and spices, those extractives, is what makes it rot resistant. The oils and the various chemicals in those extractives makes it taste nasty to bucks, which prevents it from rotting. While that's being washed away towards the center, it's leaving those outer layers with more just water and less of those minerals, less of those 11 herbs and spices. I don't know how we suddenly got to Kentucky Fried Chicken, but apparently sequoias and Kentucky Fried Chicken are the same thing on this podcast. So we're just going to stick with that metaphor. So you're not going to have those 11 herbs and spices on the, on the outside, and you will get that more creamy color. Um, now, if I remember correctly, and I, I could be wrong here, but I also think that 
sequoias have a particularly large inner and outer cambium layer. So some of that that you're seeing, that creamy color, could also be that inner cambium layer kind of mixing in there as well. So excellent points, guys. Um, I think the second or third episode of this entire podcast was I Don't Know Everything. That was the title of it. There's no possible way I can know everything. And sometimes I say things that are a bit misleading. And I think in that instance, I was just outright wrong to say there's no such thing as heartwood or softwood. What I would love to hear from is a botanist. If there are botanists out there or silviculturists out there who can actually speak to this, because I did a fair bit of Googling and didn't really find a lot that succinctly said it. Most of it is talking about the differences between softwoods and hardwoods and how hardwoods have that heartwood color and softwoods don't really. But the actual botanical description of what's going on there, I haven't really found that yet. It probably exists in a, in a botany textbook somewhere that um, even I'm going to find too dry to read. <laughs> so moving on, um, here is a message from uh, from Mike Um Hey, Mike. Hey, neighbor, I should say. Mike lives down the street from me. Um, also, technically, he belongs to the same triathlon club that I belong to, but uh, I think he's let his membership lapse. I see you on Strava, Mike. I see you're out there riding. We should get together and ride sometime. Um, hit me up. Let's go for a ride. Anyway, um, Mike says, I, I really enjoyed the Tonewoods episode, but there was a terrible oversight and you never discussed the banjo. That's true. I discussed selling wood to banjo makers, but I didn't discuss the banjo. He says, I'm curious what unique considerations it might have being somewhere between a membranophone and a cordophone. Uh, additionally, would different woods be good for open-backed versus resonator banjos? Thanks for nerding out on the topic. So um, I, I was curious about this as well, and I did a little bit of digging, and a banjo is still pretty much known as a cordophone. Technically, it is a plucked lute cordophone. Um, Yes, there is a membrane stretched over it and that does provide some resonance, but it is still a cordophone. Um, the, the control of that resonance is done by the stretch string. So it is a cordophone more than a membranophone. You're not um, hitting the membrane um, in order to create the sound. The membrane is used as a resonator. So it's a cordophone. There we go. Um, the answer to this question about would different woods be good? Um, no. It's pretty much the same story. And this also explains why my customers who are guitar makers and my customers who are banjo makers are pretty much looking for the same things. The neck, as well as the, the resonating ring, I, I know on a banjo it has a specific name. Let's just call it the resonating ring. Um, that The wood that's used there is chosen for the same reasons. So if you actually go and you look up banjo websites, especially the good ones that uh, like Deering Banjos has a couple of good articles on this. They talk about, you know, why mahogany, what, what kind of sound you get from a mahogany banjo, what kind of sound you get from a maple banjo. The same characteristics they're looking for are the same things that you hear the guitar makers talking about, the solid body makers, the acoustic makers, they're all talking about the same thing. If you want a brighter tone, you go with the maple one. If you want a warmer kind of twangier tone, you go with mahogany. Now, the difference between banjos and, and, a, and a guitar is there is more at play here. The wood is not um, as important. It's not unimportant. It's just not as important as the membrane that's stretched over it, the other materials, the steel, all of that stuff that goes into play. But the materials of the neck, the materials of the fretboard and their resonant qualities, their acoustical qualities do also play into how a um, an instrument sounds. So you can imagine if those things are made out of wood, it's going to be the same process that's going on here, even though it's a slightly different mechanism and you're resonating a slightly different way. And whether or not it's open-backed versus resonator, again, 
It's just a different mechanism. And you're still passing sound waves through this material, this wooden material. And, you know, the characteristics and the resulting tonal qualities will be the same. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about tone woods like for the next 30 episodes. Obviously, I'm not the only one who geeks out on this and loves talking this stuff. So, um, you know what, guys? Keep sending the questions. I'll keep bringing them up. So in that vein, let's get into to emails. And Jeff actually has a question about wood for drums. He says, I love the Tone Woods episode and the, the follow-up to it as well, my Specialty Woods episode. I've had some requests to build a cajon for a few friends. It seems these are typically made from plywood. Any reason why hardwoods wouldn't work? And if hardwoods would be a good option, what species should I look for or avoid? So if you don't know, a cajon, it's a drum, but it's generally a box. And a lot of people often sit on it and they will beat the front of it. And there's a sound hole on the front. I don't know if we call that an F hole, but whatever, it's a sound hole. And you're beating on that. The reason that these are often built with plywood is that boxy shape. The same reason that kitchen cabinets are normally built from plywood, because it's a heck of a lot easier to come up with those flat panels using plywood. That's just the cheaper, more efficient way to do it. Moreover, you find plywood is used in a lot of drums, just in general. Um, sometimes because of the circular nature of like a snare drum and you need that ring, it's easier to use bending plywood or you're actually creating plywood by laminating solid wood together. Um, and there are a lot of other materials that drums are made out of. But the real thing that you're looking for with the drum is you need consistency. If there are voids in that plywood, you're gonna get that kind of rattle sound that you might get. The same thing you would get if, if one of the strings on your guitar was particularly loose. It's not going to resonate at a consistent frequency. It's going to resonate at, you know, that A string is gonna resonate at 440 in one section and, you know, 485 somewhere else. And you're gonna get twang instead of bing. You know, it's not gonna ring like a bell. That was technical, by the way, because I know Matt Cremona loves it when I sing on the show. Um, the plywood gives you an engineered product that is going to be more consistent in nature. And you're going to get a purer tone when you strike that membrane stretched over the ring, which is also why drums and cajones in general are built with higher quality plywood. Plywood guaranteed to have zero voids. Interestingly enough, and I got a question on Instagram about this, the same thing applies for speaker cabinets and amplifiers. Any of those that are made out of wood, and I actually have a customer that's an incredibly high-end speaker cabinet manufacturer. Like these speaker cabinets are like tens of thousands of dollars. They use our um, Brunzeal uh, marine grade plywood, the stuff that's like 380 bucks a sheet. Uh, because they need that level of quality. They need zero seams, they need zero voids, and they need consistent ply thickness throughout. Because that the more consistent you can construct that panel, the more consistent of a frequency you can get from it. So <clears throat> certainly when it comes to making drums, you can build that using plywood. You can do like stave construction, think like a barrel, where you've got staves running vertically. Um, you can steam bend solid wood. And you know that oftentimes involves bent lamination as well as steam bending. There's a little bit of both going on there. Or you can build a solid piece and carve out the middle. A lot of African drums, like the, the um, Atupan um, talking drums of, uh, oh shoot, West Africa. 
going back to my ethnomusicology classes and trying to remember everything Dr. Gaum told me. Um, sorry, Dr. Gaum. <laughs> anyway, the Atumpan drum is, is a solid block of wood that has the center carved out of it. The same could be said from some, some more primitive bongos. Most bongos are stave construction these days, but a lot of them earlier were carved out. That solid sound is very, very different but it's also what allows the Atumpan talking drum to actually talk. The different tones and the different timbres and pitches and things that you can get by hitting different parts of the drum is caused by the differences in density throughout the solid wood because it is an organic, organic um, material. A modern drum where you're achieving different tones by hitting different parts of the membrane, you're relying upon consistency in the ring um, the sound ring that that membrane is stretched over, and that's really where plywood comes into play. Stave construction, you still get pretty consistent because the staves are relatively short, and you can kind of choose, pick and choose the same consistency, same species, things like that, in order to do that. Steam bending, because when you steam bend something, the inside diameter is compressed and the outside diameter is stretched, any inconsistencies in density are kind of ameliorated because you're pushing it, squeezing it all together, and like a less dense pocket is kind of getting squeezed up, and a more dense pocket is not getting squeezed as much, and you find out they end up kind of being equalized in the process. Still, I think plywood ends up being the most common method of construction because of that consistency that you just start with, and there's less um, work involved in order to get you that consistent sound. Okay, let's move away from tone woods a little bit because I start to get excited. <laughs> Caleb has a question about knotty pine. Um, K-N-O-T-T-Y, has lots of knots, not it was bad. Um, he says, I spoke with someone about a cabin they stayed in recently and they said it was made of all knotty pine. I was skeptical about whether it was actually knotty pine or just pine with a ton of knots. Is knotty pine its own species or grade? If I go to a big box store and buy low-grade pine with lots of knots, have I just purchased knotty pine? Um, I love the show and all the rabbit holes it goes down. Well, here's another rabbit hole for you. No, there is no species that is knotty pine. Technically, any pine that has a lot of knots in it is knotty pine. But what really makes knotty pine knotty pine is usually consistency of those knots. You find that, and this is usually just because there's so many knots, you find that there's an even distribution of those knots across the face of the board. Or if, say, you have a shiplap um, or maybe a, um, um, a cladding-type wall made out of knotty pine, the distribution of those knots is going to be relatively even, especially when you go into like the heydays of knotty pine in the 40s and 50s you find that like, yeah, there are knots everywhere, but they're kind of evenly distributed across the entire wall. That's what makes, quote, high-grade knotty pine, but it really ends up being any mixture of species. Um, jack pine here in the US, uh, Michigan and on the West Coast, uh, is, is a particularly common species for knotty pine because it has a lot of knots in it. It's a tree that branches early and, and often. Um, Austrian pine or Scots pine is extremely knotty as well. In fact, um, last time I was in Austria, I was uh, just as at Berchtesgarten and I went up to the eagle's nest that was the, the uh, house that Hitler built on top of the mountain. And um, uh, Eva Braun's room was clad entirely in knotty pine. And I just remember going up the, the little bus that they take you up to the top as you're driving through the forest. It's, it's Pinus nigra, um, Austrian, Austrian pine, the whole way up the hillside. And you can just see the 
uniformity of those branches. Like as you looked through the forest, you could almost like line up the branches on the, the heights of the tree. You come to a tree and like two feet off the ground, there was a branch and there was like branches on four sides of the tree. Well, the tree next to it had branches on four sides of the tree at the exact same height. And you go up another foot and there were branches and they were almost equal all the way through. It was kind of eerie looking how consistently those trees were branching. And that's what creates that consistent spacing of knots. Very common with, with Austrian pine, also jack pine. Go to um, uh, the upper peninsula of Michigan, certainly, but also um, the upper side of the lower end of the peninsula. Um, up into um, Hartwick State Park, you'll find uh, there's a lot of jack pines there because um, the jack pine warbler, um, that's like the only place left on the planet where the jack pine warbler has a habitat because it loves those low branches and the consistency of the brush that those those um, heavily branched jack pines provide. Um, it's great for that bird, but it also happens to be great for knotty pine. So no, it's not a species. It can really be any number of species, but the good stuff is consistently spaced knots. Did I say that enough? I think I said that enough. Ray has a question about some old boards. He says, I'd like to hear your advice on working with old boards that have been in the shop for a while, for a few decades, in fact. My woodworking hobby's been on again and off again, and as a result, I've accumulated some rough cut boards, some of which are two or three decades old. I definitely run into quirks with some of these boards. Purple hearts become quite brittle, in addition to being much less purple, as one would expect. A teak board became very waxy. Sycamore boards that warp and bow as soon as you scratch them. Meanwhile, some boards like walnut work just the same or better as the boards I just brought home. I'm sure four moves and some sketchy storage at times didn't help, but I'm sure there is more to understand. Um, here's the thing, right? Uh, and I talked a little bit about this and actually in the Tonewoods episode, where as the boards get older, they just get drier and drier and drier to the point where the those 11 herbs and spices, the extractives and the chemicals in the heartwood that give it its color, that give it its, its um, distinctive working properties and distinctive characteristics, they just become, they start to dry out. And in many instances, they will actually transform you know, on their way to petrification um, and, and different chemical reactions, different oxidization levels that happen in those older boards will cause those chemical compounds to harden, will cause them to essentially, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, exaggerate their core characteristics. So let's look at your examples. Purple heart, it just becomes more and more brittle. Well, the one thing I think of when I think of purple heart, besides purple, is brittle. It's a very hard wood, but it's also incredibly brittle. And if you look at its modulus of rupture and its modulus of elasticity, uh, its jank hardness and its density, you will you add those numbers together and you will say, oh, this is a very brittle board. Purple heart, as it gets older, just gets more brittle. Um, that primary characteristic just becomes more pronounced. Um, teak. It is a waxy board. It's one of the reasons it's so um, water resistant. As it gets older and it begins to oxidize and things begin to harden even more and more, that wax becomes more and more pronounced. That waxy texture becomes more and more pronounced. You actually can find the same thing with certain ebonies that have that strong luster to them. They become even more lustrous or another way of putting that is more waxy the older and older they get. Sycamore. 
Holy crap. The density of sycamore and the interlock nature of sycamore and the very, very large medullary rays that sycamore has. Now we're talking American sycamore here. We're not talking plain wood, you know, um, British sycamore, European sycamore. Um, what is that? Acer plantus? Whatever. <laughs> we're talking American sycamore, like the tree that's in my backyard right now. Um, low density, relatively soft, large medullary rays, large pore structure. It is an unstable species. It's a beautiful species, but it warps and it twists and it checks really fast. If you fell a sycamore and you want to cut it into boards, it's best to saw it into boards and get it into a kiln as soon as possible and slowly kiln dry it. You want to inject a hell of a lot of moisture in there and slowly raise the temperature because you want to really keep those boards moist as you're starting to drop the 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 um as you're starting to raise the temperature rather and that gives you a controlled um drying of that board that prevents it from checking and going like crazy but that's its natural tendency and the older it gets the more that natural tendency is going to start to come up and become the controlling characteristic so that's what's happening your last example is walnut walnut it's an innocuous wood it's a particularly gorgeous wood to work it's very easy working wood and guess what it becomes even more mellow with time there's a great deal of of um sedimentation, we'll go back to that word, that causes that dark brown color. The reason walnut is dark brown and, and is pretty unique in that respect is because there is a hell of a lot of chemical compounds in that heartwood that has been deposited in the heartwood to give it that deep brown color. Well, that dense cocktail mix in there means that it's kind of like any, any strong tendency that one chemical may have kind of gets ameliorated by the 20 other chemicals all around it and it just mellows the whole thing out. Um, it's kind of like um, mixing colors. You know, yellow and blue, um, uh, excuse me, <laughs> yellow and blue make green, but then if you add orange, you get kind of mud. And if you add another color, you get even more mud. And the more colors you add, to get together, you add together, the more you just get this muddy brown color. Kind of like walnut. And that's what you get with older walnut. You just get a very mellow species. The more mellow, the older it gets. There we go. Chris has a question about Polonia. And I will probably slip. For some reason, I always want to call this Paloina. And I don't know why it's Polonia. How about we just call it what the Japanese call it? We'll call it Kiri. Japanese have called it Kiri for millennia. We'll just call it Kiri. Um, Chris says, Japanese woodworkers often use Polonia, Kiri, for indoor furniture. And large amounts of it are grown in the U.S. Why is it so hard to find locally? Well, Chris, I challenge you on that. Because to me... It's not hard to find locally. I have two hardwood dealers within 30 minutes of me that I can consistently go to and buy it. So um, why is it so hard to find locally? I don't know. I guess it depends on where you live. In general, the reason that I don't have trouble finding it, like you said, it grows pretty much everywhere. It's actually listed as an invasive species. Um, it is not native here. It was introduced and it spreads like wildfire. If you don't know, um, it's a fascinating wood. It is a hardwood, very, very large pore structure. It's ring porous in nature, but the density is incredibly low. And one of the reasons Japanese woodworkers used it for furniture, specifically tansu, was it has a 
pretty strong nature to it being ring porous, but because the density is so low, it's relatively lightweight. So the Japanese merchants would build these tansu, which was, the tansu was originally designed to carry their wares from town to town. And they would pack up their little, we would call it a pop-up shop today. They would pack it up, put it on their back and walk to the next town. Well, so they, they wanted a wood that was going to be strong, be able to carry the load, but also not the case itself shouldn't weigh a lot because they had whatever their wares that were, they were selling. So Kiri became kind of ubiquitous with Tansu because of that strong yet lightweight nature. And to this day, you will find the same thing. If you take a like a crosscut cookie from um, uh, Kiri, you'll see big wide open pores. And you can very understand very quickly why the density is so low. But I remember we had a piece of this at the Stepping Stone Museum that used to we used to always fool people with because it was like a two inch diameter cookie that was about three inches thick. And we'd pick it up and like throw it at somebody like a Frisbee and say, here, catch. And they'd be like, oh my God, like we're throwing this 10 pound something and they catch it and they'd be like, what the hell? Because the thing weighed like a quarter pound. It's so light. It's very, very cool stuff. And the, the working properties of it therefore are pretty fascinating in that respect. But because the tree is invasive, it often gets cut down quite a lot. It's also a rather ornamental tree in nature. So where it does persist, it persists in people's yards and things like that. When it grows wild and it grows like a weed, it tends to be grown in like, um, it, it tends to get cut down because it's invasive for the other commercially viable species. So where you see it growing all over places, like on the sides of highways or in like the median of a highway or in like wooded areas that are specifically maintained to be wooded areas, not to be, you know, lumber producing material. There's not a strong commercial demand for it because it is relatively lightweight. There are a lot of other species that are a lot stronger than it. Um, it's pretty easy to dent because it's so soft. So for so many commercial applications, it's not really a suitable species. So when that's the case, you're not going to find, you know, a lot of widespread demand for it. So there's not going to be a lot of mills who are carrying it. The reason that I have mills, two of them locally that carry it is because they are actual sawmills who have tree businesses, like the guys that go out and take down the tree in the yard, that's part of their business. Now they bring those logs back and then they saw them into boards. So because of that, like you'll find with a lot of urban loggers or reclaimed lumber type folks, they're sawing whatever they can get their hands on and those more unusual yard trees end up in their stock. I have two guys nearby me that happen to operate that way. That's why I can find it all day long. If I had a customer come to me uh, um, at McIlvain and say, I'm looking for Kiri wood, um, first of all, I would pat them on the back and say, ooh, you know the Japanese name for it. Good for you. That's worth a thousand points on Jeopardy. Um, I could get it for them. You know, we could call through our network of sawmills and we could certainly get it because as you said, the trees are available everywhere. And because they grow so fast, they get really big really quickly. They become sizable lumber trees relatively quickly. But I guarantee you that most of the sawmills that we normally buy from domestically wouldn't happen to have it on hand. Now, knowing my uh, domestic buyer, he probably knows like 20 guys that would happen to have it on hand. But you know, the point is you might have to allow for a little bit of development time to get the to get the logs and to saw them and boards and to dry them and all that stuff. So I'm sorry that you don't have it locally. Um, you might uh, branch a little further far afield or seek out one of those tree companies um, and see if uh, they happen to be taking down any uh, polonia trees and then find somebody to saw them into boards for you. Personally, love it. I've used it in several times. I've actually built the Tansu box with it which I think Tansu box is actually repetitive. 
It's a redundant term because I think Tansu kind of means box. I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, last question is from Pat about veneer. He says, I recently received several rolls and quite a few sheets of various sizes of veneer, about two to three feet by five feet, several different species. It's been in the attic of a garage for quite a few years. And as you can imagine, it is very dry. I've done some research on the net, but since you work with the veneers, considerably more than anyone I pay attention to, I was wondering what your preferred method for rejuvenating some of this beautiful wood is so that I might be able to use it. So yes, um, veneers obviously are gonna dry it really quickly because it's very thin, you know, and there's just not much there to hold the moisture in. Now, when you're making plywood, that's fantastic because you want really dry veneers. The problem is, is that veneers are stored rolled. And when they're rolled for a very, very long time and dry, obviously they get that set to them and they will stay coiled really tightly. Same idea with steam bending, right? We, we wet the board, bend it into a form, let it dry, and it holds that shape. So the same thing's gonna happen with the veneer. So the first thing you wanna do um, is not try to forcibly unroll it, um, but if, say, you've got you know this long roll, and he says they're two to three feet by five feet, I'm assuming he means five feet long, um, I've got a couple of rolls of veneer myself that are 12 to 15 feet long. So five feet's not that bad. Um, you can pretty much unroll it gently um, and cut out what you need. You know, if you need a five foot section, that's a different story, but say you only need a foot or two feet from that. You wanna try to cut it to length as soon as possible because obviously that's gonna be the fastest way to flatten that or get it into a flatter state, get into a more manageable, workable state. Um, if it is really coiled tightly and you're having trouble just unrolling that amount by hand, you can wet it. In fact, you can soak it. Um, put it in a water bath. Um, it can be hot or it can be just room temperature um, and, and let it soak up some moisture and it will become more pliable. It will still be coiled tightly, but it's not gonna be nearly as brittle and it won't wanna snap on you. And you can unroll it to the point where you can cut it to the length you want, or you can unroll it, you say unroll the full five foot section. And then, you know, because it's wet, it will, it will you know, be a little bit more pliable. And then you can weight it and kind of push it down flat and then let that moisture dry out. And it will only take like an hour because it's so thin. You might have to flip it over to get the underside to dry out completely. It will still want to coil because you're talking about, you know, in this case, maybe decades of memory that's been set into that, but you'll find that it's, it's a little bit flatter. You can repeat it and continue to do that until it gets nice and flat. Or you can kind of speed up the process a little bit and use a veneer conditioner or a veneer softener, which is a glycerin-based um, mixture, usually a lot of water, but also glycerin. And that will um, really, it's like the, moist, the, the moistening process on speed, <laughs> on steroids, you know, and it really softens, literally softens veneer with that glycerin and allows it to be a lot more pliable and much less brittle. You will find that it's probably gonna have a memory for a very, very long time. But if you're using veneer, you're gonna be veneering it down onto some substrate and that um, softening process will be enough to allow you to at least work it until you can put it in a vacuum bag with glue and believe me, the vacuum bag and the glue is going to overpower any memory that veneer would have in it. If you have really figured type stuff, that's when things get really difficult because they become brittle and there's no consistent grain direction. 
like that um, 15 foot uh, roll of walnut veneer I have is all rift walnut, beautiful stuff, but it's all nice and straight grain. So it's got real strength along its long axis. But I also have a bit of walnut burl that, um, that has like no strength in any direction because it's mostly ingrain. Now that fortunately is a very flat um, sheet of veneer that I have, but that's when you definitely, the more figured it is, the more unpredictable the grain is, you definitely want to use veneer softener in that instance because it, it soaks into the wood and it stays there. It's not going to evaporate out like water will. And because veneer is so thin, it's going to pick up moisture fast, but it's also going to shed it just as fast. Plus the older that veneer is, the drier, more brittle it's become, the more resistant it's going to be to taking on water and the faster it's going to shed it. I've talked about the dry creek bed idea and flash floods. It's the same thing. Or I've talked about a piece of toast. Once you toast bread, it's hard to rehydrate. Although on Wood Talk recently, we talked about rehydrating toast. It is possible. But once it's already dried and hardened, it's it in water in some instances will actually beat up on it, which is why you actually have to soak it. Now the glycerin mixture it won't evaporate away. So it's got more time to sit on the surface and overcome that resistance that the dryness is, is, is um, uh, affording. And it will begin to soak in more and you will be able to work with it a lot easier. Veneer is fun. I've really been enjoying work with veneer lately. So that, uh, that's all the questions I'm gonna tackle this week. I've still got quite a bit more in my inbox, but I would certainly love more. So keep sending in questions, folks. You can email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com or you can just go to lumberupdate.com. There is a contact form there. You can fill it out and submit your question that way or you can look me up on Instagram as well, lumberupdate on Instagram. Uh, I've had several questions coming that way. Thanks everybody for your questions and uh, go buy some wood. And heck, send me some more tone wood questions because that's always fun. Guys, tell me if you get tired of talking about tone wood, because I apparently am not going to get tired about talking about it. See you next time, everybody.